This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Andrew McNeiler decided to travel through Eastern Europe in a yellow MG Midget sports car. A car that's going to stand out no matter where you are. He recalls his adventures travelling through East Germany, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Romania and Yugoslavia. He talks about the warmth and friendliness of people, the challenges with petrol quality in Eastern Europe and an accidental visit to a nudist beach. Peter Ryan is your host today and I'm delighted to welcome Andrew McNeiler to our Cold War conversation. We were friends at university who decided to do this trip. Both of us had seen quite a bit of Western Europe. In variety, you know, we'd been on exchanges, we'd been over to France, we'd been over to Germany. So we knew quite a bit. We'd go on holiday to Spain, to Portugal, and all the rest of it. So we knew Western Europe quite well. And of course, as suitably penniless, cash strapped students, the idea of sort of putting your, your head behind the East Block was good from a both from a financial perspective as well as sort of stirring the wash. What is it really like there? What type of preparations would you make for doing a driving trip into the East Bloc relative to what you'd think about for going into, say, France or West Germany or Italy or Spain? Oh, it was profoundly complex because you needed visas for every single country uh, you were going into. And we had planned to go really through most of the countries in Eastern Europe. So you needed a visa for every single one, for Poland, for Czechoslovakia, for Hungary, uh, for Romania, for Bulgaria, uh, for Turkey. You know, I, we had to apply for, I think it was 10 or 11 separate visas, each of which had separate sets of um, things you had to apply for and all the rest of it. And the thing that was stuck in my head when I finally got the stamp of the visa for Czechoslovakia, the fact that we were coming in, there was a symbol that we were going to come in by car. The car picture was identical to a 1916 Ford Model T. That was the picture of a car for the visa in Czechoslovakia in 1982. Oh, my gosh. A, you had all of that, but B, then you also had to think through the currency pieces of it um, and think a little bit about, so some of them were a bit more specific about where East Germany was very tight. So you had to be very clear about where you were going, what you were going to do and blah, 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 and why you were going and all the rest of it. Were there specific timeframes that, that they would give you in terms of you have to enter the country, say Czechoslovakia or Poland? between day A and day B, and if you don't, you're just not getting in? It, it wasn't quite that tight, but nearly. You, there was some degree of flexibility, but, you know, anything more than 30 days, they were really twitchy about. So we were generally doing it in two-week segments and giving them a kind of week, roughly, as to when you were going to arrive. Did you have any challenges obtaining the visas? Did, was there any pushback from the embassies when you were making the applications? No, not really. I mean, I think we were, let's say, a low-risk category, um, uh, you know, for, I mean, the big issue for East Germans was West Germans trying to get in and, and hoosh their relatives out. Um, 
so wealthy, capable business people, that was that was always going to be a problem. You know, generally reasonably funded but not massively students who were coming as tourists kind of played to their narrative as trying to be tourist countries when most people wouldn't flip and darken their doors it was on the foreign office suggest you don't go here list you've you've planned out your currency you've planned out the visas that are required you've got to tell your families that you're doing this trip yeah i'm curious how did how did your relatives and, and close friends respond when you explained what your your holiday plans were? That's interesting. Do you know, I think it's part of this weird thing of having gone to the English sort of upper class, upper middle class education system that puts you off to uh, boarding school and, and public school. So I left home when I was eight. So by the time I was sort of 17, 18, it wasn't really a matter of consultation. It was more a matter of information communication. So I'm not sure I was I was hugely engaged with what they thought about it. I had decided that's what I was going to do, and 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 off we went. So, you know, I think the friends that we would have talked to would have gone, mm, "That sounds a bit odd," but hey, whatever. Uh, parents would sort of, you know, cross the fingers and hope it works out okay. I'd also done a massive motorcycle trip around America. So uh, America and Mexico, huge trip around Mexico. So I think they probably thought, ah, oh, sure, if he can survive that one, he can manage the, he can manage a few hundred miles around Eastern Europe. That's so true. It's funny because I remember when I, I was really young, but it was like the end of the 70s, start of the 80s. And my grandmother had booked one of those, you know, 25 countries over a two week period, a Contiki tour around Europe and Hungary and Bulgaria were on the itinerary. And my mom was just freaking out knowing that she was going to some of these countries and worried, would she, would she get stuck there? Would she ever come back? She had no issues, but it was very much like what you were saying. There were a lot of issues. The biggest issue she had was actually obtaining the visas from the embassies in Canada, which she managed to do, but it was just a little bit more convoluted than perhaps if you were getting a visa for uh, Greece or for Portugal. Tell us a little bit about what were you driving? Oh, uh, we were driving an MG Midget with a, a a detachable roof, and I think it was eleven hundred, um, a yellow MG Midget. Okay, so so effectively, you're talking a car that's going to stand out no matter where you oh, are yeah, in the world, hundred percent, particularly in Eastern <laughs> Europe. Tell us a little bit about the itinerary that you had planned out when you were thinking about how you would actually construct the logistics of the trip. What did you guys have in mind and how did it evolve? So basically what we were going to do was start from sort of Poland, go around Poland and then go all the way down through um, Eastern Europe uh, and particularly on the Eastern European side of things and then go into Turkey, finish in Istanbul, and then come back up through Yugoslavia, and then end up in Austria, and then you're back into Western Europe from there and drive home. We came in from Szczecin, and and uh, going into Gdansk, and, and seeing Gdansk, and then coming down from there, and went through Warsaw, and uh, and Krakow, 
And and I remember buying in Krakow, I bought this beautiful chess set that I still have today. And that is still the chess set that we play, that I play chess with the kids with. And it's absolutely beautifully, you know, and it survived all the way from Krakow, all the way down and back and in. Fabulous, just beautifully hand-carved chess set. So anyway, so we we went from there. And then there was, and and so Poland was relatively open. So it didn't feel too much of a shock. But then we went from Poland into East Germany, and that was the like, wow. Okay, well let's let's stick with Poland for a second because it's interesting. My first trip to Poland was actually last year, and funnily enough, it was to Gdansk, to what they call the Tri City now. And I would dare say that the Gdansk you saw in the late 70s, early 80s, is a very, very different atmosphere to the modern, vibrant city that, that you see today. Oh, 100%. I mean, it was pre-Solidarność. The, the, the sort of industrial unrest in, in, in the shipyards was really just beginning. The thing I remember was limited food availability and these coffees with um, about half a ton of grounds that are left about yay amount of grounds uh, left lurking around in the bottom of the thing. But but there was at least sort of a broad range of food availability. And, you know, and certainly when, by the time we were translating Deutschmarks into Polish Zlotys, we got an awful lot of Zlotys for our, for our Deutschmarks. And so, and this was a theme for a lot of the trip, we ended up eating as students like kings. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. When we think a little bit about the actual border crossing into the East Bloc from from Germany, this is always an element that the Cold War Conversations listeners really enjoy. We've heard a lot of descriptions of people going into countries like Poland, like Czechoslovakia, like the Soviet Union, like the GDR, and so forth. And, and it always is a point of intrigue. Can you describe what you remember the border crossing and the immigration process was like for you when you made your entry into that part of the world? There was the most unbelievable crossing point was at a place called Dryland and Dravitz. And Dryland and Dravitz was the sort of main focal crossing point on the autobahn from West Germany into East Germany. And that was the place they were most paranoid. And they had tanks stuck on the top of 32-foot concrete pillars on either side of the whole guard post. 
and every single car it was like you like you'd now go into a sort of multi-lane booth system on a toll bridge or something you would do that to get into this thing except there were rakes of soldiers at each one of these booths who would go through everything in the car rip it apart basically and run mirrors underneath to see where you're trying to strap people or carry things in or out or whatever. So that in and out on Dryland and Dravitz was completely bonkers. And and then when you actually got into the depths of East Germany itself, it was it was just a completely different world. The, the recollection I have was the way in which everything was sort of whitewashed, concreted, um, Spartan, very limited availability. The sort of Hanukkah adverts everywhere. Eric Hanukkah being the head of, uh, and these adverts for the Deutsche, Deutsche the Socialistische Einheitspartei, the SEP, the Social Unity Party, and um, and of course you had West German marks and East German marks, so you had to change them. And if you changed them at the official rate, they were changing like one to two. If you changed them on the black market, we could change them one to ten. So, and of course, we went and changed them on the black market, and then one time got completely done by a bloke who was very good at ruffling notes in a high speed. But uh, that's all part of the uh, joys of travel. The other thing that really struck me as you got into East Germany was the change in cars. So 1980, you had a whole range of different cars that were kind of, you know, BMW had their three series and five series, albeit that sort of very early stages of it. You got into East Germany, and the, the dominant symbol of East Germany was the Trabant, which was a two-stroke car that effectively two people could lift up. And the only other one was either the Wartburg, which was actually a four-stroke, um, and a Skoda which was a really early stage Skoda, but only very few people in East Germany had a Skoda. That was the class card had. Andrew, what was the demeanor like when you went into East Germany by the border guards, guards these, these people that were tearing the car apart and doing the mirrors? How did they treat you? Uh, it's, kind of, it's like anybody who's been to Israel. It's like the Israeli Defense Force when they're checking you coming in and out of Israel. It's the same sort of, you know, they're doing their job, they're slightly aggressive, they're young, they've got power, they're using it, you're a Westerner, they're an Easterner, blah, 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 blah. So, ah, it, you know, it's it, you, as long as you don't do anything to upset things, it all flows reasonably easily. When you started looking in places like the GDR or in Poland or in Czechoslovakia for accommodation, what were the options like? How did how did you source places to sleep? What was the quality like of the places you found? I remember it being very variable. I think we were using things like um, old sort of travel guides. Um, I mean, there was no internet, obviously, in that in that era. Um, so you were you were reliant upon books, advice, things you could pick up like that. So it was it was all sort of Fodor's guide, those those kind of things, which was how you picked up where you could go. 
and then you'd kind of you'd meet people around the and and they go you go where, where where's a good place to stay here and they'd suggest x y and z and you'd go and have a look at it and so it was kind of it was slightly hit and miss were there any standouts in terms of country by country how you found the locals did you find any differences in terms of say the amicability or the the reticence to speak with people from the west depending on where you were Inevitably, because we spoke German, so we could interact very well with the folks in in East Germany. And that film, I don't know if you've seen it, called Die Leben des Anderen, The Lives of Others. It's an absolutely brilliant articulation of what um, East Germany was like in that period. And it captures beautifully the sort of paranoia. But you got a really good sense of what it was like for them, this sort of sense of West Germany being so close and, it, you know, and this sort of, you know, fall of fate where they happen to be geographically determining such an incredible shape in which they could be in this one or that one. Clear recognition of what exists the other side of the wall and this, you know, 150, and the wall was an unbelievable piece of construction. You know, not only the the thing, the guard dogs penned in between bits of barbed wire, the mining of it all the way up to the wall. You know, if you look the other side of the wall and all the stuff they had back for 150 yards before you hit the watchtower, it was all mined and armed and barbed and all the rest of it. Impossible to get across. And so it was always what we were hearing was the stories of how people were escaping, you know, using um rubber dinghies to with no metal parts on them in order to row around the baltic piece of it and there was even an mg car at checkpoint charlie which had managed to go under the barriers at checkpoint charlie got through until they then discovered oh gosh that's a problem because they poured concrete down the side and so even when the guy shot at them in the car it wouldn't go in so what they then put in was tire rippers so that actually if somebody tried to swerve through the barriers, they'd get ripped out. But you, what you were getting was that sense of the desperation, the efforts they made to try and find ways to, to get out, but also a slight sense of despair. Um, so, and, and very careful and cautious. And it was heightened in East Germany Whereas by the time you got down to Romania or Bulgaria, the people were much more gregarious, open, kind of just resigned to their fate within the, because their culture, they didn't want to go somewhere else because that was their country, that was their home, that was their language, that was their people. So it was a very different sense, although a much greater sense of poverty in Romania and Bulgaria, which was incredibly poor. Um, East Germany was actually okay-ish from an economic perspective. There was almost that sense, as you mentioned, in Bulgaria and Romania, well, this is our fate, we make the best of it. But the problem in East Germany was they were effectively being teased with all the Western television. If you're in East Berlin, you can see into the West. It, it must have been horrible. But what's interesting for me, Andrew, is the fact that what you're describing is that roughly 10 years before the Berlin Wall came down, when you were visiting, you had a sense in the GDR that there was very much a growing sense of, of despair. Yes. 
Yes, indeed, indeed. You could, you know, well, it, it, but a, but a very strong sense of repression, a very strong sense of repression, and no, no sense that the there was any potential combination of the citizenry that would be able to challenge the might of the state. Whereas when you went to somewhere like Czechoslovakia, there was a much greater sense of buoyancy, openness, enthusiasm, beautiful architecture. Prague in those days was absolutely glorious. That was one of the standout pieces of the visit. Um, you know, all that architecture preserved from unusually given the dead, you know, the devastation that happened during the Second World War, in absolutely beautiful state. And, and the people were vibrant, enthusiastic, very contemptuous of, their, of the sort of communist over, overlord. Um, and there you did get a sense of potential wishing to fight back against it. Whereas in, in East Germany, it felt much more cowed. When you look at the photos of Prague, maybe around the time you would have visited versus now, obviously you see a lot more commercialism in terms of some of the brands and the storefronts, etc. But you're right. There always was a, a view, at least of Prague back, say, in the 70s and the 80s, that it was still very much a, a cultural jewel in that part of the world. Yes, 100%. And I think in some ways, I was very lucky to see it then because it was. I think that was at its peak and in some ways the mass commercialization, as it does for so many things, slightly has, has taken the sheen of, of something that was very beautiful at the time. Prague has always had a great reputation, at least in our times, post-Cold War, for being one of the top spots for nightlife in Central and Eastern Europe. What was it like back then in terms of the pub culture, the bar culture? Because I, I always had a view from people who lived in that time in the Czech Republic or in Czechoslovakia, as it was known then, that you could always count on a good time in Prague, no matter if it was pre-Cold War, during the Cold War, or post-Cold War? That may well have been true. Um, I I don't remember that. Um, and it may have been our inability to find those places. Um, I mean, I certainly remember we ended up staying in some really lovely places in that and and from our perspective as students we was it they felt like five-star hotels to us uh, and 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 that was something you could the quality of the food and accommodation and so on that you could get in czechoslovakia was amazing by comparison with what you would find in particularly the outskirts in, in the more remote places in in romania and bulgaria can you share your impressions about the two countries? Really lovely, lovely people in both in both countries and beautiful cities as well. I mean, I think both uh, Bucharest and Sofia, um, fabulous, fabulous cities in terms of their their build and construct. But as soon as you've got outside of it, you know, the car population, which in most of the in in Czechoslovakia and and to some extent in Hungary. Um, and in East Germany, now it had really fallen off. There was a, as soon as you got out into the countryside, high percentage of pony and trap as the primary means of transportation. Um, and you're going to the thing I particularly remember both in both Romania and Bulgaria, 
was you'd go into a restaurant and they'd go, would you like something to eat? Absolutely, yes. Um, what, have you got, what have you got to eat? Uh, meatballs and chips? Uh, yeah, that'd be good. Then you go to the next one. What do you got to eat? Meatballs and chips? <laughs> you know, and so you gradually got used to the idea that actually the only available stuff was meatballs and chips and occasionally put the tomato. Um, so really, it's it's almost like, do you want to eat or do you not want to eat? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Whereas in Prague and in 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 East Germany and so on and in Warsaw and 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 in Poland, it had been the the variety of the food and the things, some of the cuisine had been fantastic. And then the other thing I remember was um, a, a lovely couple who uh, met us somewhere in Romania, and we we were going here. Look, we'd love to stay by the Black Sea. Where do we stay? And they say, oh, look, we know a really lovely, uh, great campsite. We're going there. And they drove us. They led the way and we followed them. And uh, so we pitched our tent, you know, alongside all the other tents, got up in the morning and everybody was wandering around stark naked. <laughs> so, so we realized they'd, they'd introduced us to a nudist beach. Well, I, I guess, as you say, one of those things that you experience when traveling. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> one of the things you never forget about. So you you talked about having visited the former Yugoslavia and, and having gone through some of the the parts of that country. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that was like? So we had gone down. So we went from Bulgaria into Turkey. So we'd spent a couple of weeks in Turkey and that had been lovely in Istanbul, seen Istanbul, beautiful city. So then we were coming back from Istanbul up through all of Yugoslavia. Us and two million other Turks who were known as the Gastarbeiter and um, unbeknownst to us, they take their summer holidays during July. And then at the end of July and August, they all, two million of them, leave Turkey and run this main road that comes up through Yugoslavia uh, and and through Zagreb, it's called the Auto Put, and so it was us and a million Turks on the same road, and oh my God, that was an experience. When you get when we got to the border post to get into Yugoslavia, you know the good Brits line up and we line up and we form a queue from the border post. So you know you go back, not in Turkey. In Turkey, you go, well, hang on a minute. Maybe if I go on this lane and push in all the way and then try and yank my bonnet in the front. and then the, So then you've got two lanes. And then another, another guy goes, well, hang on a minute. If I go out round past the second lane and now form a third lane and now form. So the thing was sort of fanning out like this. So you've got people converging from every possible angle. Um and then when you finally get through the border post, the other thing I remember, so they all had, were coming back from Turkey, having bought, you know, as much stuff as they could in Turkey. They'd have things like massive beds on top of these cars, just strapped in with sort of rope <laughs> running around. And then they'd just overtake. So if there was a car coming the other way, they'd just sit in the, in the wrong lane and force the other car off the road. So it was the most dangerous thing I have ever seen in my life. 
Um, how more people did not die on that road, I have no idea. The mechanics on the car were starting to get dodgy. Basically, the clutch was starting to go on the on the on the on the car, and you could only sort of you know the clutch wasn't really so you were changing gear by trying to get the revs about right so that you could move the gear stick, and um, and getting very nasty noises coming out of the gearbox, and eventually we stopped in Zagreb and had a guy look at it and do some bits and he managed to sort of plaster it back together but we were it was failing again so we were really focused then on getting out of yugoslavia back into a western country so that a we could eat normally and b we could get the um car fixed so there was precious little visiting it was just it, it felt more like a a communist country that was okay, a bit like a bit better off than Romania, Bulgaria, a bit more commercially capable, economically viable, and so on. Not much. It was sort of somewhere between Romania, Bulgaria, round about Hungary in terms of its its capacity. And but we didn't really get to see much of it at the time, and we certainly didn't visit stuff really there. Hello, I'm Craig Donald from Aberdeen, and I support Cold War Conversations with a monthly donation because it marries interesting historical content with fantastic storytelling. Ian is a great gift as an interviewer. He knows his subject so that the conversations are meaningful, but he also allows guests to tell their own story. Cold War Conversations is part of my weekly routine, and I would urge you to make it part of yours. Want to be like Craig and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War? As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free. You'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more, or follow the link in the episode information. If you did need to source a new tire because one went flat, or if you needed to get mechanics sorted out, or even to get petrol, what was the experience like for all those different elements about the actual mechanics of traveling? Yeah, you were putting pretty crappy petrol in the back of it, but it was petrol nonetheless, you know, and and there were petrol stations dotted about. You know, occasionally you need to do a bit of planning around that. And and that was another thing, of course, you had maps everywhere so we had maps of everything and where we were going because again you're not doing google maps or any of that stuff and and so you know generally there were sort of you know places marked and you could get a sense of where you were going to be able to fill up and blah 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 so i don't remember fuel being a particular problem um don't remember us having any particular tire related problems we had a spare tire so i think you know we, we probably changed that once or twice and then got it fixed and so on. Don't remember that being a big problem, but certainly the the clutch and the um, uh, the gear stuff at the back end of the trip was getting really messy. You know, one of the things I, I really like about driving through Europe that I think they've just nailed is the fact that every 15, 20 miles, you've got rest stops with restaurants, with uh, facilities, uh, comfort facilities, etc. Was there anything like that driving through the East Block that you remember? No, they hadn't, uh, that, was, that was not on the menu. I mean, uh, <laughs> they, 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 
they hadn't really got into the whole motorway system and all that kind of thing, you know, uh, at that era. Um, you, Hitler had built the Autobahn, so in Germany, those were in pretty good shape. Um, but once you got outside of that, you know, there was precious little by way of, um, there were standard national roads that were in reasonable shape, but you very quickly got into dodgy stuff. Um, you talk a little bit about the border crossing into the GDR and seeing tanks on podiums and so forth. Did you see much of a Soviet military presence in the countries that you visited? Don't remember that. No. Um, I such military pieces we came across tended to be national to the countries that we were in. Um, I don't remember, you know, Russian military setups. Now, mind you, they would have been very keen to avoid you going anywhere near them. Sure. And, you know, I think we would have gone, kind of gone, no, I don't think we'll, you know what, you don't want to go poke the bear, uh, either metaphorically literally. or literally in that case. Um, you, you could feel that, but it was, it was the sort of Soviet presence ruling through local communist. That was their modus operandi. It, it was it was Honecker's SEP that was ruining the place, not the Russians. The Russians were, but you didn't see them overtly. So at any point, did you feel like you were being followed or surveilled by local security services? That's a good question. There were a couple of times, I think, in East Germany where you sort of thought, oh, gosh, I wonder where that person's come from, blah, 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 blah. But uh, I don't remember... And certainly by the time we got into Czechoslovakia and beyond there, no. Was there any particular country that stood out as your favorite that you visited? I think probably Czechoslovakia. Um, Czechoslovakia and Prague. I remember, I just, I, I loved the time there. And I remember being really struck by the beauty of the place. Um, it, it, and it was... And it was like we had it to ourselves. There was very little tourism in those days. So, and, and I was quite surprised, I was gobsmacked by the degree to which it was also preserved. Because if you go to any of the other major cities around Europe, during the, it's, so much of it was, was destroyed during the war. And, and it really was remarkable how much of Prague was intact. And, um, yeah, and the people were very friendly and very pleasant and vibrant and happy to engage and warm. And so I, I, I loved that. And I went back again, um, actually, in, uh, so that would have been 1980. And I was back again in about 1994, three, four. And it was completely different already. What was the biggest surprise you had during the road trip in the East Block? What what stood out for from the angle of you weren't expecting, but that you but you came across? I don't know. I think it was so. It was kind of like 
when we were setting off on the trip, it was so hard to know what to expect, I think. I think the thing that probably surprised me most was the idea that people were still running around in ponies and traps and, you know, and, and obviously had so little in in parts of it in Romania and Bulgaria is kind of one. And then the just sheer oddness of East Germany that you had these great big open, you know, sort of cities where it's like things are completely flattened and then concrete, soulless. It was like the people piece had been ripped out of it. These sort of white, that's my abiding memory, white, blank, peopleless concrete blocks. As you recollect and as you think back to the time that you spent on the road in the MG, what was the biggest standout memory for you? If you could put down to one thing that happened on the trip. The joy, I think. Well, so I think it was in a bizarre way. We were, we were so uncertain as to whether we were actually going to make it back. Because um, the clutch finally went at the top of the hit mountain between Yugoslavia and Austria. And we went. We ended up um, dry, sort of coasting back into Austria, um, it, it, it was without much by way of power. We limped into a, a Jaguar Land Rover dealership in Klagenfurt, which was because that was all British Leyland at that time, all that stuff, and um, or at least they, they were likely to be able to deal with that kind of stuff. And we, we got into our sleeping bags and slept under a couple of Range Rovers at the car dealership, um, having, having, and then had wandered down and got a McDonald's. So the relief of actually getting back into what felt like our civilization was definitely one of the stand bits. But I think, no, the, the, it, it was just a sense of seeing something completely different. And, and getting a real sense of what it was like for these populations to live under Soviet rule and to be to, to really witness both the warmth and friendliness of the people and the lie that was being perpetrated by the Soviet Union in terms of the desirability of its construct. Don't miss the episode extras such as videos, photos and other content. Just look for the link in the podcast information. The podcast wouldn't exist without the generous support of our financial supporters and I'd like to thank one and all of them for keeping the podcast on the road. The Cold War Conversation continues in our Facebook discussion group. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thanks very much for listening and see you next week. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate.
by becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.